Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwell Report. Our guest today was previously on this show called Redefining Patriotism. This man swore to take a bullet for the President of the United States, but then decided that the President was no longer worthy of his life, and when he left... He moved on to challenge the whole political system because he doesn't believe that the institution of the presidency is living up to its expectations. Our guest was a Secret Service agent and part of the Presidential Protective Division. He served under George Bush and also recently President Obama. He's received a string of commendations throughout his career and was one one of the most distinguished agents to have ever served the president. He's now written a fascinating book called Life Inside the Bubble, which is on the New York Times and the Amazon bestseller list and is still climbing the charts. Our guest and author of Life Inside the Bubble is Dan Bongino. Welcome back, Dan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So how's the book tour going? Yeah, it's going great. Busy, a lot of interviews. Uh, book's really selling. We're on, I think, our third printing already just in a couple of weeks. So uh, the demand is high, and uh, it's exciting. Glad the message is getting out there. Oh, get ready for a fourth print once you finish the show. Yeah, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. We don't mind printing books. <laughs> what made you so disillusioned with the presidency that you had to leave the Secret Service? Um, it wasn't just the presidency. Obviously, the presidency is what I was surrounded by the most. It was more, it was more the idea of a representative government. And uh, I really want to avoid the melodrama because I know people get a lot of this with a 24-hour news cycle. Right. But the idea of a representative government, very simple idea that you elect people to represent your interests in, you know, in government, the presidency, yeah. uh, Congress, is, is completely evaporated. Your government sold you out. Um, Really, I mean, literally, it sold you out to the highest bidder, the highest campaign donation, the highest post, you know, congressional lobby job you can get. And unfortunately, the presidency is not much different. And when you look at the uh, the failure of Obamacare, I can tell you right now, anyone who saw this thing unfold from the inside would have seen it uh, coming for miles. Oh, it was too good a story to pass up. Yeah, of course. And, and you know, the, the the law was written by interest groups. Uh, that that are all going to profit handsomely from the destruction of the American health care system, whatever was left of it. And it uh, it really is shameful. And if that doesn't say to you the, the collapse of this monstrosity, that we have a very serious problem, I don't know what will. And I really did feel an obligation to, to speak out about it. Well, let's get to your book. 23 chapters. I loved it. Oh, thank you. And, you know, what came across was you had this burning fire inside you. Um, the book talked a bit about your life, your experiences in the Secret Service. Both, both, both sets were great. Very easy to read. Uh, in fact, my son, who's 13, he's actually reading it in his spare time. He enjoys it. Oh, I'm glad he likes it. That's good to know. I did try to write it in, uh, you know, I didn't want any hyperbole. I wanted the book not to read like a comic book, but a real account of what it's like to live inside this bubble as a normal middle-class American like I was, and I'm, I'm glad. Uh, that's the response I get a lot. It's a very readable book. And what made you write it? Well, you know, I listen, as a lot of the folks listening will know, maybe you've written books or know people who have it. I, I want to be clear. There's no money in books, okay? There's, the, the financial motivation was minimal. I didn't need the money. I wrote the book as a vehicle to get a message out there, to kind of sound the siren, be that Paul Revere for, for uh, Americans looking for kind of a diagnosis as to what's wrong. And it was, a, it was a delicate exercise. I was very careful to preserve the relationship uh, between the Secret Service uh, and the presidency without divulging any, obviously, security plans or any private conversations. But I felt the need to, to tell Americans that, yes, you have been sold out. 
that the legislation that's going through, the legislation that's passed, the spying on Americans, the using of the IRS as a, a police force against Americans doing nothing wrong, these are developments that are not going to get any better without a call to action and without people who've seen it from the inside speaking out about it. I mean, we're the ones who know, and our obligation, VIP, is always going to be to the Constitution. That's not melodrama. That's a fact. You don't swear allegiance to a golden calf or the president. You swear allegiance to a Constitution, and uh, more people are going to have to speak out, I think, about what's really going on. But you say there's no money in books, so obviously that wasn't the prime motivation. Um, and at the end of your your book, you actually say something to the effect um, let me see where I have it here, um, that you can't, that no one should think that a one-person war is not enough. Yeah, it's not. And that's why I left the book with a call to action. Call to action, right. Yeah, because people will ask me, having run for office, I get this question all the time. It's probably the one question I get uh, the most. They'll say, well, what can I do? And I usually respond by saying, well, what are you doing? And honestly, you actually said one person cannot make a difference. Yeah, the, the no one part you, you can make a difference. You can that's, make a difference. That's yeah, right, and you should not fall to that um, illusion that one person cannot make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and I mentioned you know Rosa Parks and how you can change the world, but it requires action. It requires you to do something. And when I ask people, "What are you doing now?" the answer I typically get is, "Well, you know, not much." I mean, a lot of them don't even know who their congressman is. If you take this mantle on, this battle on, and you decide that you're not going to stop until you see better results, I promise you, you're going to become a person of influence who has that voice to make a difference. But it requires that first step, and it requires action. And uh, we're not seeing enough of that now. Do you think there's a hidden message in your book? Because I know you can't say everything because of your uh, past role within the government. Right. But can someone pick up? enough from what you're trying to say, do you think? Yeah, I think if you, uh, listen, I live in a town uh, outside of D.C. that is uh, populated densely with former insiders. I think if you've seen the inside, you've seen the reflective bubble they all live in, uh, and you read the book, you'll, you'll sense exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, there are things, Vip, I wanted to say uh, that I didn't, out of an obligation, obviously, to the Secret Service and my, my oath there. There's, there were, there's one specific thing I really wanted to say um, to make a point that really would have, I think, slammed, uh, slammed people in the face and really woken them up. But I, I can't. I'm limited, and I, I, I took my oath seriously. But I think a lot of people who, one particular chapter, I think there's some folks that will read that and, know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, I love the title, Life Inside the Bubble. But who is in the bubble, yeah. according to your book? Who's in the bubble? Well, you would think that the bubble would be, you know, politicians and their staffs, but mm -hmm. uh, they're actually the least powerful people in the bubble. The bubble is polluted with insiders. And when I say insiders, I don't mean just, you know, everybody says, oh, okay, street lobbyists. That's not it. It's, it, it that's part of it. But that that's not it. There are I'll give you an example, and even the federal law enforcement side where I was, uh, there's a reason that we have an alphabet soup of federal agencies and we don't have a streamlined federal law enforcement operation. There's no power, VIP, in the federal government in, in, in yes. There's only power in no. Meaning if I can tell you no, let's say uh, I'm, I'm from the, you know, the FCC and I'm policing your radio show right now. 
and you, you need to come to me for permission to do something. There's no power in me telling you yes all the time. You don't need me. So I have to tell you no. But if I can, if I can keep that power, despite the inefficiency of it, despite uh, you know, the, the, over, the, bureauc- the, the, over, the, the bureaucracy just growing endlessly, if I can keep that power, I can use you later on for a job, especially if I can favor trade. So nobody gives anything up. So it's easier to say no than to say yes. Of of course, there's power in it. There's value in it. There's money in it. If VIP needs to, if you want to add another hour to your show and you have to come to me and the FCC to do it for some reason, and I can tell you no, then you owe me something later. When I and that's how the government horse trade begins. That's to get to your question. That's the bubble. When I say insiders, acolytes, staffers, that's how these decisions are made. So the great irony is your tax dollars may be paying for an FCC, and I'm just using the example because we're on a radio show, that one, may be unnecessary, but two, is actually being used against you to give those folks post-retirement jobs. It's really a polluted system, worse than people think. So it actually could be preventing progress. Oh, but it could be. 100% is preventing uh, progress. No Which question. means the public is living in a bubble. Right. Create, and, and, created by the administration. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a good point, that the public also is being manipulated, and it is living in their own bubble. They're, they're, they're almost sitting there staring at their reflections in these bubbles, thinking that's what's happening right now is genuine. Um, you know, they're not. Their tax dollars are being wasted. And the chapter at the end where I diagnosed the Boston bombing and all the problems that went wrong there, and I talk about how wonderful these guys are, these FBI guys, and how this was screwed up, if, if that doesn't hit home that we are in a very serious crisis right now with the, uh, the, the, bureau- the federal bureaucracy and it's just endless growth, then I don't know what will. Well, talking about screwing up and, and, and crisis, the Benghazi affair, Obamacare, the Fast and Furious scandal, the IRS scandal, the government shutdown and more. You know, it, it shows that this administration leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, Benghazi is the worst one of all from from my perspective. You know, Vip, I uh, used to leave home to a crying daughter and a very upset wife to go into some danger zone somewhere. I mean, I went to Paris, and then we were in Indonesia and Afghanistan. But uh, when you leave home to a crying kid and a crying wife, uh, it ain't easy, especially in the security field. And you would think that the government would come and save you. They owe that to that crying wife and crying child. That, you know, if there's an A to Z plan, that B is going to show up. And what bothers me the most about Benghazi is you're being lied to. Um, if, if you think you're not being lied to, you're lying to yourself. Um, I'm very familiar with international security, the process, how it works. Um, the process didn't work because bureaucrats got in the way, not because the people who wanted to respond uh, missed the boat. That's not what happened. And I, I make a pretty good case for my cause in the book on Benghazi. Well, I think as a public, which again shows to me that we live in a bubble, I think we are scared to think that the government could be anything but honest. Yeah, of course you are, because the government has a monopoly on force, and it is frightening, you know, the idea... Yeah, the idea that a government that can arrest you and take your freedom, the only ones that can do that, could be using that very same government against you as a, as a weapon and is not there to adequately represent your interests, um, is a very disturbing, uh, disturbing thing to think about. It. But the truth is, Vip, 
you know, that's the story of human history, the concentration of power, the centralization of power, um, the abuse of citizens. That's not unique to what's going on now. And we've been very lucky throughout our 200 plus years uh, because we've had, you know, constant changes in power and we've, you know, we've been relatively safe. But, you know, we're at that point now where I would argue where, where we are after the Nixon years, where it's time to, it's time to start dialing it back. It's time to get the uh, the legislative branch and the balance of power back in effect, or you may not recognize this place in 10 years. Well, you know, we talk about saving this, saving that. You know, one thing that uh, struck me and, and still hits home is that we left a hero behind in the Osama bin Laden capture. The Pakistani doctor, yeah. Dr. Shaquille Afridi, mm-hmm. he might not be a U.S. citizen, but he, he's obviously a patriot to our cause. Yeah, he helped us out. He helped us out, and we let him rot in jail. We continue to give aid to Pakistan. Talk about hypocrisy and being two-faced. You know, I never know which side to slap first. Right. Well, there's. Yeah, I mean, he makes. I mean, this administration makes Dennis Rodman look good. <laughs> wow, Dennis. Rodman. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, that, that's a, that's a tough story to talk about because the incentives created by that are even worse. I mean, the message is what. You know, help us out, uh, help us... Uh, and see us you after. later. Right, and then uh, when, when you need us, uh, don't call us, we'll call you, um, is a dangerous precedent to set. I mean, we can't ask foreign partners in the intelligence field or counter-terror field to get involved with us, get in bed with us, and then all of a sudden when uh, when you need us, you know, we abandon you. It really is kind Let's of make a, it very clear. There is no one in their right mind who's ever going to help us again. Yeah, not in that uh, part of the world. Not we in have that a part lot of, of credibility uh, to rebuild, unfortunately. You know, and the, the irony is this president was brought in under this veil of it's going to be a cure-all in international relations, and we've really never, um, never been in a worse spot, I think. Talking about we've done the what they've done wrong, what do you think they've actually done right? Uh, well, we're That's doing a, a pregnant lot right pause now. right there. Yeah, there's a pause because it's it's tough. I don't want to sound like, you know, everything's wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. And the, the, what we've done right is we, we've hired really, really good people. The federal government in the United States tends to attract very mission-focused, mission-oriented, patriotic, uh, flag-loving Americans, which is... I think really- we've hired good speechwriters. Yeah, it would do well. President Obama certainly has. Yes. Uh, yeah, but the, the people I've worked with, and that's why with the book, I... When I wrote the book, and especially in the beginning chapters, I was careful to lay out a lot of our successes as well and talk about a lot of the good people I work with to let the reader know that it, it's, it's a problem with the organization of our government. It's not a problem with the people within it. I've never ran into someone in the government ever in my 12 years there and you know four years at the city level with the NYPD who was – was submarining the system on purpose. I, I never did that. They were all there to to work and work hard. But the organization of the system and the incentives set up for people to profit from their in time in government is really destroying, again, any any chance that your government represents you. It, it doesn't. Was the bailout a good thing? No, it was a terrible thing. I mean, I, mean, I don't think there's any question about that. The only way they've been able to measure the success of the bailout, I use that term success loosely, is by saying, how bad it would have been without the bailout as if they can prove that. You know, we have an expression in economics, you can never prove the counterfactual. In other words, you can never prove what would have happened the other way. Anytime an economist tells you, well, it would have been worse if we didn't, that means he has no plan and his plan didn't work. That's the best you can do. Well, it would have been worse if we didn't do it. How do you know that? Oh, I don't. 
Okay, well, how can you say that? You can't. The bailout was a disaster. It took private taxpayer money and gave it to other private taxpayers who were either friends or aligned with the government to further government interests that weren't yours. But wasn't it taxpayers' money at stake? Using your money to save your money. No, it's not. It's not your money to save your money. It's your money to save someone else's money. No, but like, let's say the banks. Let's say um, you have your savings locked in the banks. You have um, your stock equity from your 401k locked into these publicly listed companies. Right. Um, Your money is at stake. No, it's not your money. See, that's the, that's where the that's where the money illusion is here. If those one, the banks would not have went under. We're not going to have a money run in the United States like we did in the Great Depression. It's not the, the, the financial system is is advanced decades from then. You know, we're almost a hundred years plus gone from uh, from those days. We're, there's not going to be a bank run. And even if one bank went under and another bank went under, at some point it's going to have to stop. The money doesn't go anywhere. It just means the money comes out of the financial institution. Well, Lehman's went under. Yeah, Lehman. Went and under. and there was rumors that because they didn't they didn't have lobbyists. But Lehman was an investment bank. Right. And what happened there is your money, your money, your taxpayer dollars were used to bail them out with you getting no. Did you get a stake in Lehman? I didn't get a stake in Lehman. Now, one, I wouldn't even if I did get a stake in Lehman, I wouldn't agree with it because the government should not be picking winners and losers. But you didn't get a stake in Lehman. So when people talk about taxpayer money, there's no such thing. There's my money and your money pooled by the federal government. We talk about taxpayer money as if there's this generic fog of taxpayers that aren't real breathing human beings. And if they're taking my money and not giving me a stake in a company, a private company, they're bailing out. Where is that in the Constitution? I don't remember seeing that anywhere. And there are far better ways to insure our money in banks, by the way, by relying on um, the system we have now. Well, the insurance companies themselves were at risk, remember? Of course, the insurance companies were at risk. I mean, we bailed out AIG as well. And again, where's So even stock? if our money is insured, the very insurance companies that are insuring our money, they're at risk. Everything seemed like going through the tubes. Uh, of course. And bad investments and misallocations of capital have to be corrected at some point. But if that money was going to disappear because the value wasn't there, Vip, you know, if you bought a bar of gold that was really worth $20 and you bought it for 100 you can try to sell it for 100 all you want over time. The government can keep bailing you out and bailing you out and bailing you out. The bottom line is the bar of gold is still only worth $20. Sooner or later, you're going to have to bite the bullet or someone's going to bite it for you. Do you, <laughs> think, do you think with uh, the next recession, do you think we'll do another bailout? Um, I hope we don't. Do I think we will? Um, because the yeah. government might say, well... It didn't work too badly last time. Let's do it again. Yeah, it worked horribly. It prolonged what could have been an acute recession into a chronic disease. Um, it was terrible. But bailouts, they're, they're easy. They're, people like to take advantage. And I don't mean easy with your money. I mean they're easy politically. Uh, you get to look like you saved the day. You come in with a cape on and a mask. Uh, you could talk about being a superhero, how you saved the economy. And uh, really the answers will be all long term. So you'll be long out of office by that point. And in the process, you get to buy off special interests like the president did uh, with the, you know, the Chrysler uh, Auto Workers Union. I mean, that, I, have no, I have no problem with unions, but taking shareholder money and giving the company to the unions, how, I mean, how is that not theft? Well, you mentioned superhero. I mean, Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I don't understand that. On what basis did he yeah, get it? Yeah. Because it was right at the start of his presidency. Uh, I'm trying to figure out why, because did you know Mahatma Gandhi 
Roosevelt, Pope John Paul II never got the prize. Is that right? Yeah, yep. I've never seen a preemptive, uh, uh, you know, preemptive peace prize given out. That is kind of odd. I, I just found that uh, very, very, very odd. And, and when I found out that Mahatma Gandhi didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah, strange. But uh, that, listen, a lot of this stuff is politicized. I think that obviously was uh, was politicized uh, as well. I think it lessened the brand of the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, Not because he had done anything wrong, but I think it was just a little too early. Yeah, and when you become the... Uh you know the, the the brunt of jokes on on the night uh, the the night shows the the comedy shows in the United States. You know, it probably was not uh, you know was not a good idea to do that. And and the irony is, is the world and and you know a more peaceful place now since the Obama presidency. Um, no, uh, it's not. Unfortunately, I wish it was. I'm it's the same world I you and I both live in, but it's not. Now I read your book. Like I said, um, I found the first chapter very touching because you talk about your early life. And yeah. um, your abusive stepfather. Yeah, it was it that was, sort of shaped your mindset, it seems. And you would resort to comic books yeah. as a source of uh, diversion. Tell us yeah. a little about that. Yeah, it was the only way. Uh, it was tough to watch. You know, you feel kind of helpless. He wasn't a small guy by any stretch, and. You're growing up, and uh, you, you know you're just watching this uh, abuse go on, and it really is tough. It's it's something I live with even to this day, and there's nothing you can do. It's a helpless feeling. And what yeah. sort of abuse was it? Uh, it's physical. It was a lot. He was just a violent guy, and never the, the alcohol was flowing. The punches weren't far behind, and it was just tough. Um, and and then you, you to escape to escape that they had a little cigar store at the end of my block in New York City at Myrtle Avenue. And uh, they used to sell comic books in Iraq, and I just remember I would just get lost in them. It was just a way to pretend, you know, this wasn't all happening. You kind of lived in this fantasy world. It gave me a great imagination. It was good for that. But, yeah, it did. there's no question at all that it shaped me uh, going forward. So a lot of the decisions I made uh, were the result of that. So it changed my life. But it changed your life, I think, from a – it gave you more strength. It made you a fighter. Um, it did um, in more ways than one, not just in the uh, in the, the the metaphorical way, but in the actual way too. I was I always uh, insisted after that, as I grew up, that I would never ever negotiate from a position of weakness again. When it came to something like that, uh, a physical confrontation, you know, outside of the theater of the absurd, someone pulls a gun on you, just by all means, turn over your wallet. But I wasn't going to be uh, avoiding a confrontation based on principle anymore because I was afraid. I was going to do it because I chose to. And uh, I took up uh, boxing and MMA and wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, spent about 15 years uh, doing it. And, you know, the nice part about it is once you learn how to really handle yourself, you usually don't have to. So, uh, yeah, it did change my life. Well, deep inside you, I think there's a superhero wanting to come out. Because I, when, I, when I was reading your book, there was a bit where you had just joined the Secret Service and you were doing some sort of physical obstacle course. And I think towards the last round or the last phase, you hurt both your discs at the back of your That's back. Right. Yeah, and then you were given the option to, what's that phrase called? To uh, recycle. To recycle. And you chose not to. And since that day, you actually regret it because you, you, your, your back hurts. Oh, it was a huge mistake. Yeah, I so wish. It changed uh, changed my life physically. Um, I've never, ever recovered from that. Yeah, I ruptured two discs in my back, 
Um, and for those, you know, a lot of listeners, I'm sure you have, have ruptured their discs or hurt them as well. They know what that's like. It's really debilitating. And I just worked right through it. It was brutal. Advil became my best friend. And instead of going home and coming back, which is what everybody does, you don't even, the irony is you don't even lose any pay. It's almost like a paid vacation. I didn't want to abandon my class. I started with them and I felt an obligation to finish with them. And I just plugged through it. And I remember one specific physical training session in Georgia where I was only a few days removed and my back was just, I mean, to say I was in agony. I wasn't even in pain. I could, even after the Advil, and I remember being in this PT room doing these mountain climber type things and thinking I'm going to pass out like from the pain. I can't, I could, not only could I breathe, I couldn't even move anymore, but um, I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to quit. I just felt like it sent the wrong message. But looking back, it was a false bravado. It was a stupid decision that cost me even to this day my back it was never the same do you think deep inside you're trying to prove something to yourself or to your past yeah yeah i i do i i do and um you know again i always try to avoid melodrama because it's easy especially in you know when you talk about yourself people like to talk about themselves in like comic book type terms and you know i'm as fallible a guy as anyone else but yeah, I think I am. Uh, I think that incident as a, as a child we were talking about with the physical abuse, you're trying to prove that you can overcome a physical obstacle put forth by someone else. You can overcome violence. And then through the, you know, with in, incidents like the back incident and, you know, me trying to just excel in the Secret Service, you're always putting up these artificial barriers saying, you know, I can climb that wall too. And then when you climb that wall, you're like, well, can I climb the next one too just to prove you can, and I can't explain. I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, well, neither am I. But you know, I see a trend here. Yeah, uh, no, you know, right, right from your right. age, when when you've met with the abuse, you seek uh, salvation in the comic books. They in turn inspire you. You then go uh, join the police force. Um, you then take it one step forward. You join the secret service. Uh, and then it's almost like good over evil. You decide to leave the Secret Service. Then you're running for office. Um, you're writing the book. So this is like a superhero in the making. There's a, there's a sort of a pattern here. You know, Vip, I have to say, we've spoken off the air too, but I feel like that was a very deep statement. You uh, you, you spurred something in me there because uh, it's very hard to analyze yourself. I mean, I, I went to graduate school for psychology too. You think I'd have better insight, but... I think you're right. Oh, you're right. My my wife said to me one time, you know, is good enough ever going to be good enough for you? I, I think you, you may not be the only... America wasn't born on that philosophy. Yeah, it wasn't. There, I've always had that kind of entrepreneurial go-get-em spirit, but, you know, that, that, that may sound great and all peaches and cream, but, the, you know, the reality is there's a lot of pain that goes along with that. I mean, the back injury, the financial consequences of our decision to leave the job, these are all very real things. Right. So, you know, when you get past it, we can, you know, we can sound all chipper about it, you and I, but I'm glad that you seem to be alluding to the fact that there's a penalty for this behavior, too. And I, I hope everybody listening understands that, that I'm not telling you if you choose this path, whatever you do to take this on, that it's going to be easy. It certainly hasn't been for me, either physically, mentally or financially. So good point. Yeah, it just seems, you know, there's this constant battle for good over bad. You're like the typical cowboy, the Lone Ranger. <laughs> Yeah, I just have no hat, uh, uh, no Stetson, so maybe I should go buy one. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think that your passionate beliefs uh, that have made you leave the Secret Service and write this book might actually harm you more than do good to you in the long term? 
Um, it depends what our definition of harm is. Again, you know, you have, is it going to financially harm me? Of course. Uh, you know, this, listen, Vip, the book would have to sell uh, 50 million copies, being a little dramatic, but a lot for me to even come close to breaking even at all the money I gave up leaving the Secret Service, my health care, my pension, all gone, wiped out. So financially, yes. Um, I would say on the, you know, mental, emotional, psychological front, mm-hmm. I know I made the right decision. Um, I know it. I know I went to work every day, and my wife and I would joke uh, at the end, right at the end, as I really wanted to go. You know, my wife would say it's like the zombification of Dan Bongino. She's like, you're becoming a zombie. You just, you, you just seem like you're just going through the motions in life, and you, you know, quite literally only get one shot at this, and uh, that was it. So. You know, I, I think on that front, but uh, yeah, and physically, you know, there's no question. I'm, my knees, my back, the Secret Service took a heavy toll on me, and will, you know, will continue to throughout my life. I've got horrible arthritis. Even the fighting, I broke my hand boxing and can barely make a fist anymore with my right hand. So yes, there's a penalty and a big one. But now your book's on the bestseller list, and congratulations for that on the Amazon and and, and New York Times. What what have been the best compliments you've received from the readers? Well, when you go to the Amazon uh, site to look at the reviews, um, and you look at the people who actually read the book, there's a couple political people in there I know didn't read the book and took a shot at me, but the, the real ones, they say, I can't put it down. Uh, one, one, uh, one guy writes, it's a must-read call to action. And I think that's important, the call to action part, that people understand that it's not good enough to read the book, just like it wasn't good enough for me to read Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. Yeah, it's great, but you know what? Get on the radio, go out there, give some speeches about why capitalism and freedom matter. So um, that's the best compliment I got, the can't-put-it-down part. And I, I really tried to write it in such a way to always always leave that that cliffhanger and, 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 and rope you back in, because those are how the stories actually went down. There's no exaggeration in those stories at all. I no, assure. but that's what I found. I couldn't put it down. Yeah, well, that's even good. even my son couldn't put it down because one story led to another. It was a very smooth flow. Um, the level of English was very simple, easy to understand. Yeah, and you almost felt like I was sitting on your shoulder while you were going through the motion. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted. I wanted you to be in the story. And as one of my first copy editor that read the book, he was really fascinated because I was a first time author, and there's usually some. There's some elementary amateur hour stuff. Uh, hey, we're going to leave sooner. You know? So, um, sorry, I was talking to my wife there. So, um, yeah, there's usually some amateur hour stuff you do there. But uh, he was shocked, and he wrote rich in detail, um, critical but not angry. Uh, he really loved it. And uh, he, he said it was the same thing I told you. It was like um, it wasn't like a comic book. It was like when, you, when I was describing the inauguration and the president. Mm-hmm. You know, you can feel the cold pavement through the leather sole shoes that day. And I, I talk about, you know, people crying who had lived through Jim Crow and how I think is, you know, the Republican Party sometimes is, has lost that idea. And I try to always interweave the politics with the ideology, with the security. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I did a good job. I'm not giving myself a pat on the back here, but um, I really put a lot of work into the book. I intentionally made it short. It's only 60,000 words. Most books are between 60 and 80, but it's no, not it's a, it's a great stalking fellow. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I, the pictures, I didn't overwhelm you with pictures. I put enough to tell the story. I put, uh, you know, and, and I made the story self-deprecating when it needed to be. You know, we got enough superheroes. I, I wanted you to feel what it's like to really be an agent. Even Did it, well, you came across as a superhero. Um, 
Did anyone think of you as a supervillain? What did your critics say? Well, there was one guy, but he was um, anonymous, and I never attribute much to anonymous sources. Mm. There was some guy at a, you know, ABC. Uh, I gave an ABC interview or something and said that uh, he shouldn't have wrote the book. But the truth is, he didn't read the book. I'm telling you, most of my critics never read the book. When you read the book, it's different. I think you, it, one, it's very flattering, a personal portrayal of the Secret Service, uh, not necessarily the system, and also uh, the president in some respects. It doesn't take cheap shots, and it really is designed as a call to action more than anything. And, you know, I, Vip, I ask this question. People in radio love questions because it engages the audience. But your listeners, if you were in my position, and you see all this happening, and you know it's going to go badly, and I mean very badly. Mm-hmm. We are maybe maybe a decade away from a complete economic collapse, and you're watching these people sell out left and right and pretend to represent you, and you know no one's seeing what you're seeing. My question to them is, what do you do? Do you just sit back there and just say, ah, you know what, I got a government car, I got a government paycheck, I'm making six figures. Matter of fact, I wasn't even paying for gas. I had a government credit card to pay for gas. My life's good. Screw everybody else. That's, I, mean, uh, that that, I, think, I think 99% of people would do that out of uh, fear. I, they probably would. It, uh, and I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. No, I'm not either. And, it's, I, I, and, and the thing is, I get that. I'm not even taking a shot at them because I get that. People have kids. They have sons and daughters and lives. They're struggling to put oatmeal on the table in the morning. They're not waking up every day thinking about the Laffer curve and the debt crisis and Obamacare. Who has time? I get that. Believe me. But the call to action in the book is I may get it, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right what I was doing either. I mean, listen, my job was a noble job, secret service. Put your life on the line for someone else. There's no nobler profession outside of our military, in my opinion. And if I can walk away and make a difference and take a hit and get out there and use my voice to change tomorrow, what are you doing? I mean, you have to do something. You have to take response. Don't fall into the middle class apathy trap where, you know what, it's all good today, so I'm not worried. There's no guarantee this is the way it's going to be tomorrow. And that's why politicians always want the middle class right. to be it. the maximum voting population because they are the most apathetic. You know, Vip, it's the it, we're, we're, Schumpeter always said that capitalism, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, it shows the seeds of its own destruction mm. because it always, always leads to the greatest degree of prosperity as compared to any other economic system or economic model. There's no question about that. Its record of success is 100%. The problem is that success imbues into the middle class, and it develops a middle class, which is unique to our country, by the way. Um, it, it develops in, the, in the, a sense that this is the way it's always going to be, and this is the way it's always been. But it, that's not. We are, the United States and, and free markets in general have produced a level of prosperity in free countries that has never been seen in human history, ever. We're not only the exception to the rule, we're the exception to the exception to the rule. I mean, we are a sliver of human history, less than two centuries. The rest of human history has been rape, pillage, and plunder. That's been it. The, the strong man came to your property, stole it, stole your food, maybe your wife and kids too, and that's the way it was. I mean, just read history to see that account. And the fact that we've been so successful that we've imbued this apathy that, oh, don't worry about it, the process will fix itself, is extremely dangerous. And I think that's what Schumpeter was alluding to, that this is going to sow the seeds of its own destruction. There's no question.
Well, how have your children and your wife reacted with the book coming out? Because your voice seems to be increasing with the with the footprint you're leaving. Yeah, it has been. And uh, have there any I'm, problems at school or with friends? Um, no, I mean there have been. There's some issues. There's occasionally a couple folks who, uh, you know, who will um, uh, say something to my wife or my kids or something. Mm-hmm. And it, it's disturbing. I mean, I don't like it, but that's the penalty you pay for speaking out. I mean, it goes back to our, you know, our prior comment that, you know, there's a penalty for this. This isn't free. And I hope everybody understands that. Well, you dedicated the book to your wife, Paula. Yeah, she's a tough cookie. I mean, and, and you know, story. she's going to probably be listening. What would you like to say to her about everything she's done for you? You know, she's been there for me, and she really provided a... It reminds me of, you know, when you go to the circus and those guys are dangling around and jumping between things back and forth and all that stuff. Uh, there's always that safety net below. Well, I assure you, most of these guys would not be doing that if there wasn't that safety net. Well, she's always been that safety net. I mean, if, but emotionally, of course, is most important, but, you know, financially um, as well. Uh, as, as it said to me, you know, take a chance, you know, change the world if you must. I'll, I'll be here and... She's got an incredible. She could honestly, Vip. She could write a book that would probably sell more than mine. Having been a because she is your safety net, always. But you're not necessarily her safety net. Well, because you're out. You're you're taking a risk with what you're doing. You're on a mission that that has an element of risk. Yeah, and I think she's forfeited away a lot of that safety net that I had provided right. in the past. Uh, and although I may be the face of this, let's call it Bongino political movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I may be the face of it. She's really the backbone of it and the structure of it. Because without it, I, I mean, right now, Vip, I forget it. None of this would have been possible without it. I'd be probably homeless right now. Well, what's been the secret to your marriage then, that she could stand by your side through all of this? You know, again, because I can't stand melodrama. Practical uh, advice for anyone who just got married is... I look at it like a a, a job, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, everybody complains about their job um, until they lose it, but they quietly know it makes them a better person. Don't buy into the fairy tale stuff, because when when anything takes a turn for the worse, then it's like, oh, gosh, this didn't meet up to the fairy tale. If you look at it like a commitment you would have to your job, and you you, you get all the other options off the table. Like, you don't say to your job, right, I'm going to go into work today, and if I don't like it, I'm going to quit, right? Right. But people go into marriage, most of them, I mean, most of my friends, and they go into it with, yeah, if it doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced. Well, you're already, you're already divorced then because you've already accepted that as an option. Look at it like an investment in each other, and, and you'll be fine. But get rid of the fairy tale nonsense because I think that's what destroys marriages. I mean, my, my wife and I, you know, this idea of like 24-hour parties, she's best-selling authors, it's all garbage. We, we sit home and watch uh, House of Cards on Netflix on Friday night. That's the best thing we could possibly do. We love it, too. So get rid of the You know what the secret to my marriage is? What's that? We take time to go to a restaurant two times a week. You know, we have a little candlelight, there's a bit of dinner, some soft music, dancing. She goes on Tuesdays, I go on Fridays. Is that right? And yeah. That works, for you. that works for you, right? <laughs> yeah. See, we don't like to go out at all because we're total homebodies, but that, that's it. I mean, if you're not homebodies, then that's good that you've made that commitment. And but you The only difference the- is she goes on Tuesdays, I go on Fridays. Yeah, she's out with it. <laughs> I get it. Hey, whatever works. My whatever friend, works. I'm, I'm good for you. It's good for Now, you know, she's not the only one. Paula's not the only one who supported you. Isabel oh. and Amelia, your two daughters. Yeah, Amelia was born uh, after I left, so she's kind of a... 
new addition to our family equation here. But, uh, yeah, there's no question. I mean, uh, Isabel, my oldest, is, mm-hmm. uh, to say, is skin in the game. I mean, she had her pound of flesh, if not more. Uh, to, to watch her, I mean, she said to me one night. How old is she? Right now she's nine. Um, What's your you know, message for her in all of this? That I, I missed her, mo- mo- really, I think, more than she ever knew. Um, she was too young to understand. But I would come home, and time doesn't mean anything to six- and seven-year-olds. And I'd be gone for two weeks. She might have been two years. She didn't know the difference. But uh, those two weeks were far more painful for me than they were for her, because time is very real um, to a 30-year-old, I, I, I assure you. And it was devastating. And to watch, you know, to constantly have to leave um, and walk out the door and see this, this my, my daughter just in tears constantly was just uh, was devastating. I mean, every time... Ta- it takes it just takes a chunk out of you. It really does, and you never get it back. So, will this Christmas be a good one for the kids and the wife? Yeah, the great irony being, I'm actually on the radio on Christmas morning um, as part of my, you know, radio. Oh, I don't remember scheduling that in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it's. I wish it was with uh, Vip Jaswal, but uh, it's. Uh, it's no, oh, well, can't have everything. So you haven't been a good boy, according to Santa. So. <laughs> But I don't know what I'm getting. But I'll be home by 9, and I told Paula, just keep the kids upstairs till 9, because I am not forfeiting away uh, the opportunity to see them come down all excited. And after the book now, when it all sort of dies down, what does the future hold for you? You know, uh, that's the interesting part, Vip. That's the $64 million question, isn't it? And the answer is, thankfully, I have no idea. You know, when you're a Secret Service agent, everything's planned out. You mm-hmm. go to the field office, you go to the president's detail, you go back to the field office, you get promoted, 25 years, you retire, you get a nice pin set, everybody says hello, gives you a book uh, book of letters, uh, excuse me, says goodbye, and, uh, you know, they give you a nice, uh, maybe a beer of the month club subscription on the way out. Um, that's all gone now. I forfeited away financially. But you must have something in mind. What you would like uh, you to know, do in an ideal world? Yeah, I mean, without sounding ridiculous, yeah, I mean, changing the tr- political trajectory of the country, and that may sound like a, uh, an incredible goal. But you know, before I launched my Senate campaign, I had an incredible goal due in Maryland. I said we're going to win the Republican primary for the United States Senate as our first political run, and people laughed. I mean, literally laughed. Press people, everyone. They thought, who's this crazy Secret Service guy? Well, we won. We beat nine other guys. Now, I didn't win the general election, but, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't sell my uh, ambitions to change things short. Uh, we're developing quite an audience. And social media, VIP, is the great force multiplier. We've developed an extraordinarily large audience because I write all my own content. Well, I think your book's going to make a great Christmas gift. Uh, really a book written with some passion and meaning. And I wish you continued success, Dan. Thank you, VIP. Godspeed and God bless, my friend. Thank you very much. Always an honor to talk to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. For more fascinating stories, log on to foxnewsradio.com and click on to the VIP Jaswell Report and keep your ears open for the next airing of my report coming soon.